Uh, welcome to Memorial Day weekend at Gateway, and this is the weekend when we uh, celebrate, remember, and thank those who have paid the ultimate sacrifice for us so that we're able to do things like this, gather freely and worship. Uh, let's kick us off with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for those who have sacrificed, given their lives for us, uh, we know in many cases, Lord, they did that with a deep connection to you. And we're also thankful for your sacrifice, the sacrifice of your son on our behalf. And we are here today especially because of that in his stead, or actually he in our stead. Uh, we want to honor him today, and we, we pray that you would help us to um, brag about Jesus and what we say and in our hearts. In his name we pray, amen. Okay, so uh, this morning, welcome to the tether pole. I don't know how many of you have played this game. It's in uh, some of our school classroom, uh, not classrooms, but schoolyards. Let me, let me explain. This has been a uh, traumatic week. Uh, we've heard deeply unsettling news this week about school children news that's frankly hard to process, news that makes us wonder about the foundations of our culture. It makes us wonder about our faith. And all of this on top of news about diseases and, and wars and displacement of peoples, and, and that news is layered on top of whatever else is going on that makes your personal life complicated right now. And there are complications to be sure. This week I heard about a woman who uh, had um, someone in her family uh, commit suicide, and, and she has a, a relative who's having profound life-threatening surgery and a, a child that's going through very serious complications all at once. So we're in the third week of the second part of uh, our journey through the Old Testament book of Exodus in a series that we've called Rescued, and we have to ask, what in the world does this have to do with all of that? What do 3,400-year-old what do events have to do with what happened this past week in Texas? And what does ancient history have to do with this coming Wednesday and what you and I will be facing? Well, as I said, welcome to the tether pole. Uh, you know, in tether ball when you're actually playing tetherball most of you will know this there are usually two people and they're kind of on opposite sides of the circle that the the tetherball creates and one person is trying to hit the ball this way and and make the ball wrap around the pole and the other person is trying to undo that and hit it this way and make the ball wrap around the pole but the thing is the ball never gets lost the ball never goes anywhere except a, a really small and tighter and tighter circle one way or the other. As long as it's a tethered, as long as it's attached to the pole, it's not going anywhere. No matter how hard we hit it, the ball isn't going anywhere. Well, the, the Bible and the stories of the Bible are the pole because it reveals truth to us. It, it, it shows us that the universe is is purposeful and designed. It was created. Events aren't random. They have meaning and significance. And the Bible shows us that there is a God who, who is in charge of all this. And 
no matter how strange the circumstances are, he's in charge and he loves us. So this ancient story of the Exodus, which is one of the most significant parts of the pole, by the way, it helps us stay tethered to who God is and how he operates. It helps us stay tethered to his love for us and how, how that love operates. It compels us to seek him. And in him, we find everything we need. Even when we get batted around, we're not going anywhere if we stay tethered to the truth, if we stay tethered to the story. So, welcome to the tether pole. All right, in our passage today, we're going we're gonna to see two titanic truths. These are basic Christian truths. We'll spend a little bit more time on the first one than the second one. So students, thank you so much for being with us. There are going to be two things that we will talk about today that come out of our passage. The first great truth is that God is sovereign. Now sovereign, that's just another word for king, boys and girls. And a king or a sovereign has the power and the authority to do whatever they want to do within limits. So a king can wage war anytime he wants to. A king can, can tax his people as much as he wants, whenever he wants. Uh, a king can have someone promoted or they could have someone put to death whenever they want. Now there are limits. A king can't make it rain, for instance. A king can't make me healthy if I'm sick. And a, a king or a sovereign can't, say, turn a piece of wood into an animal, right? But God is not just a sovereign like a human king. God is the sovereign. All power and all authority originate with him. There are no limits to his sovereignty. So the way a human sovereign can do whatever he wants to do within limits, well, God can operate that way without limits. Psalm 115.3 in the Bible says, Our God is in heaven. He does whatever pleases him. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, all who live in it. One of the truths we're going to see in our passage today is that God is sovereign. The second truth we're going to see in our passage today is that God wants to be known. In fact, he will be known. Our God, and he is our God, he is relational. He relates. He wants to be known by us. Our longing for something more than ourselves, it comes from him. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says, Our God has made everything beautiful in its time. Listen to this. He has also set eternity in the hearts of people. Our God wants to be known. And these two great truths come screaming at us from the passage that we're looking at today. So let's pick up the story where we ended last week and let's listen for these uh, two great truths. And while I'm reading today, students, I want you to listen. While I'm reading today, I want you to participate with me. So every time I say Moses, I want you to say, yay. All right, let's try that. I'm going to say Moses. You're going to say, yay. Moses. Yay. That's not bad. Okay, I'm going to say Pharaoh. That's the, that's the sovereign. That's the king of Egypt. When I say Sarah, Pharaoh, I want you to say boo. Pharaoh. Okay, Moses, Pharaoh, okay, good. When I say staff, I want you to say boom, boom. Staff, Pharaoh. <laughs> and then, we won't get to this right away, but in a minute, I'm going to read a story about frogs. And when I say frog, I want you to say ribbit. Frog, Moses, staff, 
Okay, good. All right, uh, we're going to look at we're going to look at where we ended last week, Exodus chapter seven, verses ten through fourteen. And just for this part, we're going to cover different several different passages today. But just for this part, let's go old school and stand out of reverence for God's word. You remember what we're doing, right, Pharaoh? Okay, staff. All right. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh. Did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, Boom booms, maybe. (laughs) Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. You may be seated. Now, God can do, and he does do, whatever he needs to do to accomplish his purposes and desires. And here we see, by the power of God, a piece of wood is turned into a snake. Our God is sovereign without limits. You know, earlier in the story, we we read that the leaders of the Israelite community, they had seen Moses and Aaron do this same thing with their staff much earlier. And they were amazed and greatly encouraged, and they believed in the Lord. Listen to this. When our hearts are soft toward God, we believe it when God moves. Don't miss that. When our hearts are soft toward God, we believe it when God moves. But Pharaoh saw the same thing. Pharaoh saw the piece of wood turn into a snake, and he remained skeptical. Pharaoh saw the piece of wood turn into a snake, and he remained skeptical. Have you ever been like this in your life? Seeing God move in some way and still remained skeptical? Do you know people like this? People who see God move and they still don't believe. They still doubt it. After Aaron's staff turned into a snake, Pharaoh called in his court magicians. And they did the same thing. They turned their staffs into snakes also. How did they do that? Well, we know that Aaron turned his staff into a snake because of the power of God. How did the Egyptian magicians turn their staffs into snakes as well? We don't know for sure. And next week, by the way, adults, we're going to talk some about the supernatural elements of this story. We're going to be honest about it. But for now, do you remember the words secret arts in the passage? It says in verse 11, the magicians did the same things by their secret arts. That same word is also used in the next incident when Moses and Aaron turned the water of the Nile into into blood, meaning the Egyptian magicians did the same thing by their secret arts. Well, that word can also mean trickery. So maybe this was like David Copperfield or Penn and Teller, if you've ever heard of those people. Maybe these Egyptian magicians were skilled at sleight of hand. I don't know what this is. That's supposed to be sleight of hand. It could be that Pharaoh believed Moses and Aaron were using the same kind of trickery. Or maybe the Egyptian magicians were were operating under some kind of real but, but very evil power. We don't know. Anyway, the truly amazing thing about the staffs and that whole incident is what happened next. Aaron's snake ate the snakes of the magicians. 
for anyone who had any openness to the things of God, this would have been a clear sign that the Lord of the Hebrews is sovereign. If they had been open at all in mind and heart to God, they would have thought, I should listen to what he's saying because their God just owned my God. But not to Pharaoh. Pharaoh's heart is unmoved. Now you may know this, but in ancient Egypt, the pharaohs and the people around them considered them so sovereign themselves. They considered them many gods. Now, even the pharaohs believed there were gods. There were many, many gods. But, but believing that there is only one God who is sovereign over everything and everyone, even the life of a pharaoh, well, that's a different thing. That was a no-go for the pharaoh. So here's what happened next, and I want to read from the children's Bible. Some of you may have had a Bible like this when you were little. Uh, when you were very little, your parents may have read to you from a Bible like this. This is the beginner's Bible. And we're going to read the next two incidences because after this happened, Moses and Aaron go back to Pharaoh and they end up turning the water in the Nile into blood. And then they go back to Pharaoh again and they end up bringing frogs from everywhere up onto the land. So I want you to remember what we said. When I say Moses, you say except more enthusiastically. When I say Pharaoh, you say, yes, no, you say boo. When I say staff, you say boom, boom. And when I say frog, you say ribbit. So Moses and Aaron went back to Pharaoh. And God turned all the water in the Nile into blood when Aaron stretched out his staff. The people could not drink the water, but the king would not let the people go. I know you can't see this, but it's just some shocked Egyptian, uh, and he's got a bowl full of blood, and he's picked it up out of the Nile. Then God made frogs come all over the land. Frogs were in ovens, in beds, everywhere. Pharaoh said, make the frogs go away. Then your people can go. But after God took the frogs away, Pharaoh said, no, the people cannot go. So God told Moses and Aaron to go to Pharaoh early in the morning and meet him on the banks of the Nile River. And when he got there, God told them to say this. And this is chapter 7, verses 16 through 18. The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has sent me to say to you, let my people go so they may worship me in the wilderness. But until now, you haven't listened. This is what the Lord says. By this you will know that I am the Lord. With the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile and it will be changed into blood. The fish in the Nile will die, the river will stink, and the Egyptians will not be able to drink its water. So Moses and Aaron did exactly what God asked them to do and God did exactly what he said he would do. If I may emphasize a point from last week, uh, last week in our conversation we talked about obedience and in verses 15, 16, and 19 of chapter 7, about this incident, God told Moses and Aaron to go, to say, 
to take and to stretch out. And they did each of those things just as God said. And God did his thing. And this, this reminds us, this shows us how much God can accomplish through his people if they will only do what they are told. Now, you should know that the Egyptians worshipped the Nile River. An actual text of an Egyptian prayer reads like this. Listen to this. Hail to thee, O Nile, that issues from the earth and comes to keep Egypt alive. It's said that most devout Egyptians said this to the Nile every morning. They had at least three gods associated with the great river. There was Osiris, who's depicted with the water of the Nile running through his bloodstream. Another was Nu, who was the god of the life in the river, the, the fish, etc. But the most important god was the god Hapi. He was the god of the flood. Now the Egyptians knew that the annual flooding of the Nile brought the topsoil that they grew their crops in. It, their, their entire livelihood depended on the Nile flooding each year. So Hapi was a fertility god and he was portrayed as a bearded man with a pregnant stomach. And in praise of Hapi, they sang this. This was their hymn. Hail to your countenance, Hapi, who goes up from the land, who comes to deliver Egypt, who brings food, who is abundant of provision, who creates every sort of good thing, who fills the upper and lower Egypt. So you can imagine how unsettling it would be when one day the entire river turned to blood. This was more than just an inconvenience. I like what this one guy, Dr. Philip Ryken, said about this. He said, quote, With one single blow, God gave them a water and food shortage, a transportation shutdown, a financial disaster, and a spiritual crisis, end quote. You know, we're not that different from ancient Egyptians, only our gods have different names. And one day God will do the same thing to the gods of our age. He may be showing us hints at that in our world right now. Because our God is sovereign. I find verse 24 of chapter 7 particularly interesting to me. It says this, verse 24, And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile to get drinking water. They, they couldn't drink from the Nile. Because they could not drink the water of the river itself. I think those of us who have put our hope in our economy, the way the Egyptians trusted in theirs, we better grab some shovels because we're going to need them. Then, seven days after the Nile cleanup, Moses and Aaron paid Pharaoh another visit. This time, it seems like they went to Pharaoh's court to see him, not out to the Nile. And these were their instructions, and this is chapter 8. Go to Pharaoh and say to him, this is what the Lord says, let my people go so that they may worship me. If you refuse to let them go, I will send a plague of frogs on your whole country. The Nile will teem with frogs. They will come up into your palace and your bedroom and onto your bed and into the houses of your officials and on your people and into your ovens and kneading troughs. The frogs will come up on you and your people and all your officials. So Moses and Aaron went, just as God said, they did what God said, and then God, God did what he said he would do, and can you imagine frogs everywhere? So I have to say, personally, frogs give me huge ick. This may be because when I was really young, a group of friends of mine and I, I don't know how we did this or where we got the materials, but we, we got a really large 
metal basin and we went to a creek near one of my friend's houses and we collected a whole bunch of tadpoles and put them into this large basin and then we just watched them and, and after some period of time, I don't remember how long it was, but after some period of time, the tadpoles started turning into frogs and uh, it was kind of uh, icky and gross watching them try to scale the side of this metal basin and get out and uh, frogs everywhere and, and I had, <laughs> had nightmares about frogs for weeks. So this week, I saw a list of fun facts about frogs from Smithsonian Magazine. And let me just give you six. There were a bunch, but these are fun facts about fun facts. Smithsonian called it. Fun facts about frogs. These are six. One gram of the toxin produced by the skin of the golden poison dart frog. Thankfully, this frog is found in the jungles of Colombia. One, one gram of his toxin from his skin could kill 100,000 people. Second fun, fun fact about frogs, a frog completely sheds its skin, hang on to this one, about once a week. After it pulls off the old dead skin, the frog eats it. Thank you. Ooh, it's right. Ick. Third, when, when some frog tadpoles hatch, the male frog swallows the tadpoles. He keeps the tiny amphibians in his vocal sac for about 60 days to allow them to grow. And then he proceeds to cough up tiny, fully formed frogs. Ick or what? Fourth, when a frog swallows its prey, it blinks and it pushes its huge eyeballs down on top of the mouth to help push the food down its throat. Ick! Uh, fifth, most frogs have teeth, although usually only on their upper jaw. And the teeth are used to hold prey in place. They don't eat it. The, the teeth hold the prey until the frog can swallow it whole. Ick! Six, do you know what a, a group of birds is called? You know what a group of birds is called? The flock. Do you know what a, a group of cattle is called? It's a herd. Well, a group of frogs is called an army. So imagine a frog army everywhere. Frogs everywhere. Why did God do this? Well, the first answer to that question is found in Moses' reply to Pharaoh in verse 10 of chapter 8. Moses says this, So that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. He's sovereign. Our God is sovereign. There's no other. He has limitless power and limitless authority. But you should also know that out of all the Egyptian gods, and they had many, they had a creator God who was known as Knum. And Knum was married to the life-giver God who was known as Heket or Hecht. You spell that H-E-Q-E-T or H-E-K-T. And Heket, the life-giver God, was always pictured as a frog. So frogs were considered sacred to the ancient Egyptians. Ooh, that means when God struck the Egyptians with a mountain of frogs, not only was this incredibly inconvenient and just plain weird, but they couldn't kill any of them because they were sacred to them. They thought they, thought they were holy. Can you see how God was making a mockery of their worship of the god Heket? Now, why does all of this matter? All right, boys and girls, you make sure your parents are listening to this. 
Why does all of this matter? Well, I, I have a good friend who's uh, out of work right now, and I was talking to him this past week, and uh, something really important struck me in our conversation. I was reminded of a time in my life when I, I felt like I was on the bench. I didn't really know what I was doing and didn't have a lot of purpose and, and direction. And I, I said to my friend, you know, though, if I had known in that moment what I knew nine months later, I would have not only not been worried, I would have enjoyed that moment. I would have gone to the pool. I would have had a good time because if I'd known what was coming, I would have been fine in that moment when I felt like I was on the bench. And here's the thing, I should have known. I had all the information I need to know in that moment what I knew nine months later because I know God is sovereign and I know he cares for me and I know the stories of his movement. If I just keep my mind and my heart tethered to the story, I'll know. Look, through all of these plagues, our God was systematically humiliating the Egyptians and their gods. Meanwhile, back in the slave yards, back, back where the Hebrews were working to make straw and uh, make bricks without having to gather their own straw in the hot sun, they were, they were struggling. They, they were doubting. Their everyday lives were proceeding just the same. And they were wondering, what is God doing? And at a personal level and, and at a corporate level, all of them together, even at an international level, God, why are, why are the Egyptians prospering? What's going on? If they, if they could have just known then what they knew 50 years later, they would have been fine. But they should have known. If they would have just stayed tethered to the stories, to the truth. Our God is sovereign. That's the first great truth. Now, the second great truth, we won't spend as long with this one, but it's equally important. The second great truth that we learn from this passage is that our God wants to be known. That's crazy. Our God is relational. He wants a people who will be in relationship with him. He wants us to be in relationship with him. Our God wants to be known. In fact, our God will ultimately be known. We will either recognize him willingly as Moses did or we will be brought to our knees in broken recognition as happened to Pharaoh. Do you remember uh, chapter 7, verse 17? We looked at it earlier. Moses was speaking to, uh, for God and he said this to Pharaoh. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. That was part of what was going on in this, this entire episode, this entire story. God was showing himself. He wants to be known. And again, later in chapter 8, do you remember Moses' response in verse 10 of chapter 8? He said, so that you may know there is no one like the Lord. Our God wants to be known. This is one of the central themes of the whole story of Exodus. Over and over again, God reminded Moses that he knew Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they knew him. God told Moses his name. God told Moses that he remembered the people. And, and this doesn't mean, oh, oh yeah, those, those Hebrews, oh, I forgot about them. I remember them. Now, that's not what it means in Old Testament speak. When God says, I remember my people, that means I love them. I've had them in mind. I want to be their God, and I want them to be my people. If we look back at verse 8 of chapter 8, we didn't read this, but if we look back at that verse for a minute, I want you to see something really important here. This is just after all the frogs have been released. 
And here's what verse 8 says. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Pray to the Lord to take the frogs away from me and my people, and I will let your people go and offer sacrifices to the Lord. Of course, we know that Pharaoh changed his mind. He didn't let them go. But in, in verse 8 here, chapter 8, Pharaoh says, Moses, Aaron, come, pray to the Lord for me. He uses the name Yahweh here. Pray to the Lord. Pray to your God for me. Uh, the Pharaoh's beginning to know a little bit about God, isn't he? And he asks, he asks Moses to pray on his behalf to Yahweh, not to the Egyptian gods. He has some sense that Yahweh has power here. In a sense, he's even submitting to Moses. But that's it. That's all he does. His heart hasn't changed. In fact, once the frogs are gone, he takes back his offer and tells Moses the people can't leave. And this is a reminder of how much a person can know about God without ever coming to know him for salvation, for rescue. Pharaoh knew that God was both creator and judge. He recognized the power of God's name and believed that he could answer prayer, but he did not know God as his rescuer and as his sovereign Lord. The proof is, in part, that he couldn't pray to God for himself. Don't miss this. He had to ask Moses and Aaron to do his praying for him. Plus, his request is probably based on superstition and not real faith. He also made the wrong request, didn't he? Rather than asking God to take away his sins, he asked God to take away the frogs. Pharaoh wanted relief from the punishment rather than rescue from the whole direction of his life. He wanted rest from the circumstances. He didn't want to repent of his choices. Prayer is one of the best tests of a person's true spiritual condition. A life of prayer depends on a personal, saving relationship with God. There is a sense, of course, in which our God listens to every prayer, even one offered in the name of Allah and Buddha. Because he is all-powerful and present everywhere, God knows and hears every prayer that has ever been uttered. But the only prayers that have a claim on his fatherly heart are the ones that are offered to him through faith. And that means praying to God the Father, through God the Holy Spirit, in the name of God the Son, and that's Jesus Christ. If someone cannot pray for themselves, then asking a Christian to pray for them is better than nothing. <laughs> but realize what this indicates about their spiritual condition. And you know people like this, and, and some of us may be people like this. They may not be children of God. Because unless we pray, unless we learn to pray for ourselves, we will never receive eternal life. Eternal life begins with a prayer. And the, and the only way to receive spiritual life and to be rescued for eternity uh, 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 is, is by speaking to God directly on our own behalf, telling him that we are sorry for our sins and that we want his son to be our savior. One of my favorite books in the Bible is Paul's little letter to the Philippians in the New Testament. And at one point in his letter, Paul breaks into a hymn. I, it may even be... This may even be a, a chorus that they had sung together at some point. And in the hymn, he says this about Jesus. And I want you to hear this. And one more time, let's do some spiritual aerobics and let's stand out of reverence for God's word. 
So this is from Philippians 2, and this is a hymn that the Apostle Paul writes to some of his friends. Jesus, he's talking about, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage or something to be held on to. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Listen to this. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge. Our God wants to be known, and ultimately, he will be. Every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Why don't you sit down for another second? Our God is sovereign, and our God wants to be known. In fact, he will be known. We can recognize him and receive him now, receiving the life he offers and the peace that comes with a relationship with him, or we will recognize him one day as the recipient of his judgment. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for showing us truth. And I pray today and this week that you would help us to stay tethered, that you would help us to stay attached to the truth, that we would, that we would remember, that we, we would be anchored in, in the pole of your truth, knowing that you're sovereign, you're in charge, no matter what we hear or what we see, you're sovereign. And your sovereignty, your, your, your control has no limit. And knowing that you love us and that you want to be known by us, you are a God that wants to be in relationship with us. And we recognize today that that happens through your son, Jesus Christ. Today, we acknowledge him. We, we, we bow our hearts before him. And we declare together that he's the Lord of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.